Independent. Expressive of a spirit of independence, self-confident, unconstrained. Good evening. My name is Joe Armstrong, and you are listening to Independence Day. This is the show that examines the changing face of the music business and the people who are doing the changing. Independence Day brings you independent artists, producers, and music industry visionaries with in-depth interviews, live performances, and inside information, all without hype and direct from the artists who practice their craft. Tonight on Independence Day, Jimmer Podraski. More than once, F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote, There are no second acts in American lives. Scholars have long debated what the author meant by that statement, but regardless of intent or implication, when taken literally, it can be a stark reality for some people. Jimmer Podraski's first act opened when he cast himself as the leader of the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania band The Rave Ups, a band that deftly mixed country, rock, and other styles of music before doing so became an avocation for the bands who would be labeled as the progenitors of alternative country music. The Rave Ups had enough regional buzz to warrant a move to Los Angeles, but it didn't last. When the other three members opted to return to Pittsburgh, Podraski stayed, assembled a new lineup, and continued to record, play shows, and court record labels. At one point, all four members of the band worked in the mailroom at A&M Records while they rehearsed in the basement after hours. When Podraski began dating her sister, actress Molly Ringwald became a friend of the band and created a pop culture footnote when she inscribed the Rave Ups name on her three-ring binder in the 1986 John Hughes movie Pretty in Pink. In a bewildering turn of fate, although the Rave Ups had two songs featured in the movie as well as appearing in a scene, neither cut made it onto the soundtrack of the coming-of-age classic. The band garnered critical accolades but struggled to achieve mainstream success, and they officially split up in 1992. The Rave Ups played occasional shows in the ensuing years, but Podraski took a two-decade-plus break from recording to focus on being a father to Chance, the son he'd had with Beth Ringwald. The near collapse of the American economy in the autumn of 2008 found Podraski being laid off from his job as a script reader, and an incredible run of misfortune befell him. As Podraski struggled to find work, he lost his apartment, his dog died, and Chance struggled with addiction. At one point, the Podraskis were living in a car parked in a friend's driveway, and a phone call led to a three-day stint in a mental institution when a concerned relative mistook Podraski's depressed musings for suicidal intent. A chance encounter with actor-musician Robbie Rist marked a turn in Podraski's fortunes. Although he hadn't been recording, Podraski never stopped writing songs, and there were now hundreds to choose from when producer and Dwight Yoakam drummer Mitch Marine began sorting through them to find the ringers that would eventually comprise Podraski's long-overdue new record, the aptly named The Would-Be Plans. When listening to the ten songs on The Would-Be Plans, a case could be made that Podraski was so far ahead of the curve that only by 2014 can listeners finally and fully appreciate his genius songcraft. Podraski's confident and cocky vocals haven't lost a step, and the record simply crackles with pitch-perfect accompaniment by a band comprised of ace players. It's a hell of a second act, and one that might make Fitzgerald smile and shake his hips. Welcome to Independence Day, Jimmer Podraski. Why, thank you, Joe. Hey, man. It's good to have you here. <laughs> well, thanks. Come all the way out from the valley to beautiful Glendale to be on the show. I've only been to Glendale a few times in my life. It's, Talked about that. Got a little lost on the way I over. I did get lost. <laughs> <laughs> I did get lost. It's that, a confusing That's exit. nothing new. Yeah, no that's big nothing. deal. So, man, you are a fairly legendary musician. You've been doing this. I'm not a legendary pretty, musician. Pretty good I, I think that uh, I, I, I made my mark as a songwriter, and I happened to be in a band that sort of uh, got cult status eventually. Yeah. As, as What's the line from Chinatown? Uh, prostitutes and old buildings all oh, yeah. become respectable. Uh, after a while, yeah, I yeah. think that you know, because the, the rave ups never fit in a niche back then. 
Um, there was no such thing as no depression. Yeah, yeah. There was no such thing as Americana. Um, so even when we were on indie labels or on major labels, I don't think they really knew what to do. That's been the curse of that genre mm-hmm. all the way along, you know, no matter what part of it you're in, because there's the kind that leans towards kind of power pop, like the Jayhawks a little bit, right. uh, bands who, you know, I think Ryan Adams is probably the only artist I can think of who's had pretty big success in that genre, but he jumps from genre to genre mm-hmm. as well. Sure. You know, but like, you know, there's so many bands. Uncle Tupelo never had big success. No. Wilco, as popular as they are, you know, they make a living at it, but they're right. not riding around in Rolls Royces. They're not making Katy Perry money. Yeah, not even close. <laughs> they're not making Katy Perry assistant money. Well, you know, it's funny because I, I as m- I was always about the songs. So if, if, if I had done a good job as a songwriter, um, that was the most important thing to me. I knew the rave-ups were stuck between a rock and a hard place because we didn't fit into anything that a record company could use their formula right. and say, this worked on this band, so this is what we're going to do. And we didn't sell a lot of units. And as years go by, it's amazing that people still seek out that music and buy it. Yeah. Because they, they didn't when it was out. Yeah. And the uh, the most recent review of this record, uh, again... Your brand new record, Would Be Plans. Right. Again, talked about the fact that I've been gone for 23 years it had to reference the rave ups. Um, the the Bud Scapa one referred to the rave ups as a seminal Americana band, and that cracked me up because I'm thinking that we didn't have any idea that we were making yeah. seminal Americana music because that word didn't even exist then. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is, think about it though. What other genre has like four different names? Alt country, no depression, depression, Americana. I mean, even to this day in 2014, like it doesn't have, maybe that's the problem. Well, I know that this is just now getting to radio, being pushed to radio, the would-be plans. And it's AAA format, Americana format, non-com which I would assume is like NPR type stuff. Right. So these they're these radio formats that didn't even exist yeah. really before when I was making yeah. records years ago. So there, there's a lot that's changed. To me, I don't see the difference between AAA Americana and non-com. They all seem to play the same stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it's... Well, Americana is the same way. I mean, it's essentially... You know, I guess you can get all backwoods with it. You can get down to like bands like Gillian Welch, who right. could be probably lumped into that somewhat. Right. Um, who, you know, are, are, they don't, you know, they don't even play electric instruments. Right. You know, and there's bands that kind of fall into that. But then you've got the whole Mumford and Sons thing, mm-hmm. which I saw a really funny thing on Facebook the other day that described that as the hair metal phase in Americana, like the whole Mumford and Sons four I, on the floor I, I, drum beat I, I, thing. I can see how the analogy would work. And it's like, you know, um, it's, it's sold a lot of records, but it's like all the rest of the people I know who are kind of in that community, the Americana community, whatever that is exactly, are kind of resentful that those Well, because guys they're English? That. Well, that, but they've kind of co-opted something that was loosely Americana. I mean, what, what, but what describes it? And that, I guess that's what I'm getting you know, at. Did, but that's did, the problem. But didn't the Beatles and the Stones co-opt 
the blues and R and B. Oh yeah, everybody's so, borrowing from it's everyone. Okay. But no, it's, it's not the problem. It's that it's hard. You know, the label likes to have labels. I know for things to put it in a bin, even though the bin doesn't really exist anymore. They want to know what to call it so right. they can sell it to other people who like those kinds of things. Right. But you know, the Americana thing is extremely eclectic. It's like it's like alternative music when it started in the early nineties. I have heard I have heard the rave ups referred to as alt rock, alt country, cow punk. I mean, there's a obviously Americana. I guess you could fit it into anything you want. For me, I don't think the rave ups ever were trying to be traditionalists in any way. Yeah, I loved folk music and country music and blues, and I tried to incorporate it into the songs that I wrote. But I was never trying to be an authentic folky. Yeah. You know, I, I, I loved pop music and rock and roll as much as I loved any of those rootsier forms yeah. of music. And, you know, I don't... I think trying to fit something into a category is a dangerous thing to do. Yeah. In art, it's a dangerous thing to do. It is what it is. Yeah. You either like it or you don't. Yeah. Well, that's just it. You think back of the seminal bands. You've got the Stones, who did Sweet Virginia and Dead Flowers, and Pink Floyd. David Gilmore would play the pedal steel. Some of my stuff. favorite country songs are Rolling Stone country songs. Yeah, indeed. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's this moment like it's like, you got your Marshall amp on my pedal steel. Right. You got your pedal steel on right. my Marshall. Right. And, you know, two great tastes that taste great together, but nobody still knows how to but sell why, it. But why should they be mutually exclusive? It's a, it, it, music is a, is a, you know, it's a, it's a stew. Yeah. And, and those who really want to do it in a very traditionalist way, you know, I, I don't say that's a bad thing. It's just not for me. Yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't only want to do no microphones. You got to get up there on the. the yeah. You know, it, it's a weird thing to me. It, 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 some people are are very purist in yeah. that, and some people aren't. I'm not a purist. Yeah, I'm not big into rules. It, no. I mean, it, I mean, in some regards, I'm almost resentful of the fact that the music that I love to play, the music that naturally comes out of me, sounds like that kind of music, because that automatically puts me in that area that's kind of hard to define there and it's no, not an issue to me i don't have these rules it's just that what spills out of me well like, it would be easier to market myself if my music sounded like Katy perry and I, I would know what to do with it i noticed that the great brian whelan had a a uh, a dialogue going on facebook with all of his music buddies the about, songwriting rules about songwriting rules and you know i normally never comment on any of that stuff i never join anybody's threads or anything like that i i'm i might be voyeuristic in that i read some of them but i don't really throw in my two cents because this i love brian you know and i thought he should know better than to say that there are any rules in songwriting because there yeah. aren't so as soon as you there make aren't. a rule you break it and that's what sells exactly. a million copies exactly it doesn't have to have a bridge. It doesn't have to have a chorus. It doesn't yeah. have to to adhere to standards that are rules. Yeah. I mean, that, well, I, I can imagine you know John and Paul sitting down in 1962, you know, to write some tunes and be like, oh, you know, this song's really great, but the the bridge can't be more right. than four bars, you know, or it can't, you know, well, we can't do that cool change. Right. You know, it, they just did what they did, and those became the rules because that's well, what they I'm did. Well, I'm sure working with George Martin was an experience in that George Martin could be the one to say, "Open with the chorus, not with a verse." Yeah, 
Yeah. Now that might be revolutionary yeah. back then. Yeah. It worked. Yeah, Does it work on every song? No, because there are no steadfast rules. Right. The only rules are your technical limitations. But right. the thing is your technical limitations become part of your creativity. Exactly. Exactly. You know, they're only the only actual hard and fast limitation. There's a funny story I remember reading at one point about, you know, because the Beatles were always experimenting and always, you know, trying to push George to do more and crazy different things. There's a story for musicians, there's something called a DI box, a direct injection box. If you're playing a guitar or a bass, you can plug it, you can't just mm-hmm. plug it directly into the console. You've got right. to go through a little box first. Right. You know, and they would always run one channel into another channel to get more EQ on a right. particular song, a particular track or whatever they were doing. They were mad geniuses. They were mad geniuses. At one point, John Lennon asked George Martin, can I put? Can I di my voice? <laughs> in other words, like, and right, I remember like George there. Martin saying something. Like, well, unless you want to have a quarter inch right. phone jack installed in exactly. your neck, n- no, but you can't do that. You know, they 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 were fearless. Yeah, and the results, you know, that yeah, it says it all. Yeah, and there's a lot of people doing that. This comes up a lot on my show. Tom Waits is an example of something that I really hold in high esteem in that regard. Because you, you listen to the way his records sound. He's completely unconcerned about selling records. He doesn't have to worry about it. Right. He's got the same people who are going to buy his record every time, myself included. Right. He, you know, he'll, the, the John Prine syndrome. Yeah, he'll, he'll distant mic something that no one else distant mics. Right. Like he'll put one mic in front of a drum kit. You know, right. nobody else would pull that off. You'd never hear that in a Katy Perry record. No. He's the you know, the whipping girl for the particular right. episode so far. Uh, but she's you know, cute and so she's well. fine. You know, not to take. She's got way more influence than I'll ever have in the music industry, probably. And you know what? She's not a bad singer at all. The girl can actually sing. She's fine. It's just not my cup of tea. She's fine. So, but you know, but guys like Tom Waits, uh, other bands who kind of experiment like that are completely willing to not have these rules and be, as you said, fearless. Right. You know, and I think that's a really essential part of art that maybe is missing a little bit. So anytime I find someone like that, you know, I, I tend to like it a little right. bit. Right. Well, I've always gravitated toward the the songwriter. Tom Waits is not a great singer. Bob Dylan is not a great singer. John Prine is not a great but all three of them are incredible singers to me because yeah. I would prefer to hear them do their stuff than to hear somebody else do one of their songs. Yeah. And even though they're all great writers and people have done wonderful covers of all of you know those guys, I still would rather hear Tom Waits do that Tom yeah. Waits song or John Prine do that. You know what I mean? It's I a, couldn't agree more, Jimmer. And, it, it, and I don't know whether or not it's because that's the way I first heard it or that I have an affinity for people whose voices aren't all that great. I think it's... There's uh, a personality to them. I think it's... Uh, I think the latter part of what you just said is a really big part of it because, you know, I always liked... I liked artists who were doing their own songs. There are certainly great interpreters and amazing mm-hmm. singers out there, like Jeff Buckley, for example. He didn't write a ton. No. He wrote some, and his stuff was pretty good. But he was a heck But of he a was singer. an amazing interpreter, and he was kind of crossed that line a little bit. Right. And there are other people like that. Joe Cocker comes to mind, where he didn't write a whole lot. He was just an interpreter, and that's fine. The artists that I loved the most, and to this day, are the ones who would interpret their own music right. in whatever, whatever way right. that means and whatever shape that took. Right. Those are always my favorites. And a lot of those people had very unorthodox instruments in their voices. They did. They did. Uh, You know, uh, I guess you could say they had voices that only a mother could love. (laughs) Or me. Or me. Exactly. (laughs) No, but it's it's what made them iconic. Yeah. It's really, I mean, come on. 
Bob Dylan certainly is well known as a great yeah. writer, but you have to own up to the fact that he did have a very iconic singing voice. Yeah. There was something about the way it sounded, the way he phrased those words that yeah. he wrote that somebody else is not going to be able to do. They yeah. might hit the right notes. They might, you know, at, at, in the Joe Cocker case, he might take a Beatles song and make it better than the original, but that's a rare thing. That's a very, very rare yeah. thing. Which is why the best interpreters are the ones that we hear about, right. the people that we know about, the Jeff Buckleys right. and the Joe Cockers, and there's people, lots of other people out that, but out there in the world. But let's 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 focus back on you just a little bit. My guest tonight here on Independence Day, Jimmer Podraski. He was a member of the Rave Ups, and you can call them seminal or not call them seminal, but uh, lots of people <laughs> do love them. Uh, he's got a brand new record out, which is really, really great, produced by Mitch Marine, my friend, and Dwight Yoakam's drummer. Uh, some really, really smoking players on this. People who've been on my show have got Brian Whelan, Ted Russell Camp, uh, Rami Jaffe from uh, The Wallflowers plays on this. It's a really, really great the record. The fabulous Marty Rifkin. The fabulous Marty Rifkin. Let's listen to a track from it right now, man, because I, I want to give people a taste because it's really, really good. came out... You know, somewhere between December and now, because <laughs> records come out on a different timetable and in different ways than they used to. This, uh, we were trying to figure out when this album actually came out. This is such a soft release; it's almost liquid. <laughs> it, it's in its own glacial yeah, phase. What the heck? Uh, we've chosen the track "The Far Left Side of You." This is Jimmer Podraski here on Independence Day. upon the wrong side of my life, but now that you are gone, the other side is mine. The chairs are on the ceiling and the walls are painted blue. Well, I would surely sing your song if I could only hear the tune, but right now I'm just singing on the far left side of you. Dream a dream, grown man up inside. But right now it's just something and something can't be bought. The bedroom door is broken and the bathroom's broken too. Well, I would turn it to your heart again if I'd only find my shoes. But right now I'm just sitting on the far left side of. Now that you are gone, the other side is mine. 
the chairs are on the ceiling and the walls are painted blue Well I would stand up for myself but it's too difficult to move So right now I'm just sitting on the far left side of Jimmer Podraski here on Independence Day. My name is Joe Armstrong. You can learn about him at jimmermusic.com, also facebook.com slash jimmerpodraski. And for those of you who aren't from the upper Midwest, that's P-O-D-R-A-S-K-Y. <laughs> like as soon as I, you know, as soon as I met you, I knew, well, as soon as I heard about you, I, I knew how to pronounce your I name. Fo- I found out via my son just about two weeks ago uh, that it was originally Podraski. Yeah, that can make sense. From Slovakia, and my great-grandfather is the first. I mean, uh, that's how far back yeah. we go. Not that, it's 19, yeah, not that far. 1900 is when Jacob Padraki came from Slovakia and landed in the Pittsburgh area. A lot of our family's names got, you know... Butchered or right. modified when they came through Ellis Island or wherever right. they showed up on American shores. You know, my my mother's name was Babish was her last name, which from the old Lithuanian old country right. was certainly not Babish. I got some Lithuanian else. in me. Yeah, so it's you know it's it's but it is what it is, and these are the family names. That's the thing about being American. Right. You know, we're we are what we are. You know, and well, are what we make of ourselves. You know, what it what is it to be an American? I I mean that's a loaded question because. We're a country built on immigrants. Yeah. And so there is no such thing as, you know, yeah. American. And I, w- it's a, I it's wish a, people who were trying, we're talking about labels before, trying to put things in boxes. And I wish people wouldn't do that with people either. Exactly. Like if you, if you exactly. get here and you want to be part of this great experiment that's still I don't, rolling on. I'm not in, I know. I'm very well aware of the things that make us different, yeah. whether it's gay, straight, black, white. It, that does not interest me at all. What interests me is what makes us all the same. Yeah. I what, tell my what, friends that. What is it that makes me the same as a African-American lesbian? Yeah. I know there is. Yeah. And I'm, I'm well aware of the differences that doesn't matter to me. I've gotten to a point in my life where I would rather talk about what we have in common mm-hmm. than what we don't. Right. And that we is everyone. Exactly. There are plenty of people eager to argue about what we don't have in common and try to exploit our well, differences. Well, that's, that's why I think, you know, the whole dialogue that we ha- have about same-sex marriage or legalizing pot, I mean, my God, there are so many more important issues for us to really be having dialogues about. Yeah. And yet we choose these sort of no-brainer things to me. Like, if you want to marry, go ahead and get married. 
I'm not a big fan of marriage myself. Yeah. So I, I think to myself, why would anyone want to get married? Yeah. But if they want to, they should have the right to do it. It's a no-brainer issue to me. Yeah. Who cares? I just Who don't cares see what goes cares. on behind closed doors? Yeah. It's none of my business. Are they consenting adults? Exactly. You, yes. Exactly. You, yes. All right. Get on with it. If there are no crimes being committed, then anything goes, as far as I can. Indeed. Concerned. It's a very ecumenical uh, life we're having yes. here. Uh, you've got this brand new record, the Would Be Plans. Lots of great people played on it. Tell me, because it's been a long time since you did a record. You know, nineteen ninety. Nineteen ninety. That's you know, the business had to have changed <laughs> considerably. Yeah. Tell me, you know, because yes. you've been through the process. You started making this record what maybe a year ago or so. Yeah. So, and then more than that, just well, not too much longer, right. but tell me, you know, the, the it's got to be a sea change. Like, what's different this time around? Um, well, business wise, the dynamic is somewhat different in that there are things that exist now that didn't exist back then, and there are things that existed back then that no longer exist, right? So, but musically, nothing. Really, you know, it still is a matter of you got to write songs, you got to record them, and you got to perform them. Right. That's it. And that hasn't changed at all. You got to get out there and play, and you got to write. And I never stopped writing. So when it came time to do this record, Mitch and I sat down, just the two of us. Mitch Marine, the producer of the record. Um, And... This record is as much Mitch's as mine, easily, maybe more. I mean, I I did what I do, which is to write songs. I sat in a room with Mitch, and because I had 23 years' worth of material, we had to go through an awful lot. So I sat yeah. there with an acoustic guitar, and he sat there with a, an acoustic bass, and I played things for him, and he reacted to them. And we whittled things down so, to the 10 songs that we decided we'd go into the studio and do. Give me some perspective. Like, I can only imagine how many songs I would have penned in 23 years. Give a me, lot. like, what's a lot, though? That's what I'm looking for. Are you talking um, 100 songs? Yeah, at Are least. you talking 200 songs? I would, I would say somewhere between 100 and 200. My uh, Lord. Um, hey, do you have, and, did you have actual, like, did you record demos of any of these? Like, some or, of them, yeah, sure. Okay. Um, Terrible demos, but demos, you know, and I, I was glad to pass the, the judgment on to him because I, you know, these, they're all my babies. So from, you know, in my mind, I think they're all really good songs. I don't, I don't really sit down and write something. And if it's terrible, I abandon it. You know, I never even bother finishing it. So if if I ever get to the point where I finish a song, I in my heart, I think it's a great song. But I also know that I'm biased. It was great to work with Mitch in that he was listening to it purely from, you know, a, a very objective point of view. What What turned him on as a drummer and as a bass player and as a guy who loves music... I mean, Mitch had one of the great lines to me one night. He would always have to give me a ride home from sessions because I didn't have a car. 
So, you know, I mean, he was such a nice guy that late at night he would drive me home. And we got to know each other on those long drives out to Woodland Hills. And one night he said to me, you know, I don't listen to the lyrics of songs. I don't know what any of your songs are about. I don't, you know, and I'm sitting in the passenger thing, seat thinking and to myself. And your head just exploded a, because your producer is, just told you that he doesn't listen to the lyrics right? of your song. And I'm thinking, that's all I got, man. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is my thing. I'm not a great singer. I'm not a creative musician who's brilliant on his instrument. That is my thing. And at first I was a little bummed out. And then it dawned on me that he was the perfect producer for me because I would worry about the words. I would worry about selling the song as a singer. Not Mitch. Mitch was going to worry about the sound and the playing. And that's what was important. That's really what was important because I didn't have that. I don't have that skill. I'm not a producer. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a great player. So it was a perfect combination. I, I cannot wait to make another record with him. That's good. That's, I a, cannot that's high wait. praise. And Brian yeah. and Ted. Yeah, that's a, well, it's a hot band, man. And you've been kind of playing around town a little bit with those a guys. A little bit. Now, I, unfortunately... They didn't come with me up to the Libero Theater, which I really wanted, uh, yeah. but D- Dwight had them. <laughs> yeah. Dwight had Mitch and Brian. Yeah, the guy who's footing the bill is flying them around the country to play gigs in front of tens of thousands of people. Damn so, you. So, uh, you know, there's, uh, he, he has Damn rank. you, Dwight Yoakam. He has rank. Let's listen to it. That's, uh, we've got a guitar. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's play a track from this record. What's, uh, what have you got for us first, um, Jimmer? This is a song called Empty that, uh, Rami played on, and he did a wonderful job on it. And uh, it, I wanted it to be the opening track of the record. Um, Mitch, thankfully, he vetoed that. No, no, uh, Mitch was right. Uh, the far left side of you was a far better opening track because it a lot it in that one song. Sort of told you what you were going to hear for the rest of the record. It might not be the best song out of the 10, but it was the one that was going to allow a listener, in first hearing it, what they were in store for yeah. with the rest. Little harmonica, little yeah. this and that, you know. And it was a perfect album. It's like track. the overture. You know, and for those, we live in a world of singles now again. We once, you know, back in the Brill Building days, we were in a world of singles. And then albums became the main thing for a very long time. So some people don't care about these kinds of things, but I, Mitch did. I Mitch do. Did. I care. I'll never forget the day Mitch said to me, I want to make an album that you don't skip any songs and they all work together. And I'm older than Mitch. So I, I even was like, dude, I'm right there with you. But there was also a part of me that knew that the dynamic of the music business, yeah. how it's consumed, has changed dramatically since I did it. So no one really thinks about albums. They think about downloads right. and songs. That's it. But I admired the fact that he wanted to do that. Yeah. He wanted to fly in the face of everything that else that was around him that said, yeah. you don't do that. And he did. 
He did a, yeah. an amazing job. He Sequencing made is so important. All Mitch. All and Mitch. it's so important for those of us who care about this kind of thing because there's so many things to take into consideration. There's the key of the song. Everything. The time signature of the song. The, the intros, the outros. The intros, the, the outro, whether right. it fades or whether it stops exactly. or whether there's like a count off at the beginning. How, how much of a space between... How much of a space... How many nanoseconds? No, it's, a, it's an art. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a whole voodoo art that I honestly love. It. I, like, love I, it I Sequencing a record, I could sit and just for hours... I'm, I love it so much that... You know, if someone is playing their iPod or their MP3 and it's on the shuffle mode, oh, it drives me bananas. It, I can't take it because when I finished hearing that one Stone song, yeah. that next one is supposed to come right after yeah. it, and when it doesn't, I'm kind of bummed out. Your brain is so tied into it. <laughs> yeah. I can always, you know, I mean, I don't have perfect pitch, but I, I, I've got a very good sense of relative pitch. And every time a, an album plays, I can tell you the note of the next song before it even comes on because I've heard it so many times, I know exactly where it's going to be. Right. And here's a funny little story, just a little sidebar <coughs> before we play this tune. This is a perfect example of sequencing. I wonder what you think about this. I grew up with Boston One's first record, mm -hmm. Boston One. I love that record over and over and over and over and over and over again, I played it. And the, I got it on cassette tape because that's what we listened to right. when I was in high school, my formative musical years. The sequencing of the Boston's first record is different on the cassette than it is on the album. And then when CDs came out, it's the same as the album because that was the format that the it was vinyl. the vinyl that it was originally released in. Why so, did they change the sequencing well, there on was the a, cassette? There's a unique thing with tape oh, because oh, that's right. they so could the, right. save you know, a nickel per cassette by putting, arranging the songs right. in a different order so that they were pretty close to the same length on side A and side B. At least it B. wasn't like the old A-track thing where they oh would my have God. to cut the song in Well, half. those were bananas. I don't even want to talk about those. That's a technology that's best left dead. Yeah, there's no romance <laughs> for A-tracks. Who thought up this format? Yeah, good plan. Uh, but so here's the thing. So I became very, very accustomed to Boston One having the sequence that I knew it as. The cassette version. The cassette version. And, and on that version, for those of you who'd listened to the album, Four Play Long Time is actually in the middle of the, the record. But on the cassette, it's the last song. Mm. And for me, that was the perfect song to end right. that record on because it's a strong, it's a right. two-part song, and it's like a big anthemic out thing. Right. It's got a long fade, and it's perfect. And then when I bought the CD, it was a different order. And I was like, what's this? This doesn't make any sense to me. So I became so, uh, what's the word? Not convinced isn't the right word. It was like woven into my soul that this right. is the sequence for the record. And like so much so that now when I went on my iPod, I physically went into iTunes and <laughs> resequenced the record so that it plays in the cassette order. You know what you like. I That's know what it. I like because Home Tonight is the last song, which is kind of a, for that album, is the most throwaway probably right. of those songs. And it's like, right. well, you can't end that epic record right. on that song. Well, you know, that might have been uh, marketing geniuses. Yeah, who knows? And, right. Who knows? God I mean, knows Tom Shaw's got the runaround from record well, labels. Well, uh, you know, uh, there are very few people that I've met in indie records or major label records who really knew what they were doing <laughs> that's maybe the statement of a lifetime Jerry. And, and you know and and i don't blame them because a lot of them got their jobs in a and r or at, you know whatever and they didn't want to rock the boat so therefore they never did much of anything yeah um when i was a male when i was a male boy at a and m all four members of the rave ups were male boys at a and m records at a time when we were starting to get 
a lot of critical acclaim. We, we weren't making money so that we could quit our day jobs, but we were getting, you know, Robert Criscow and Robert Hilbert. I mean, major people were saying wonderful things about us, but we were still working this crappy day job. And you get to see working at a record company who really does the work. Right. And they were mostly the assistants and the secretaries, not the guys who had the, you know, the corner offices and the expense accounts. They were idiots. Most of them were idiots. Now, Jim, isn't that the case with every profession? However? It may be. It may very well be. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe you know, electricians and plumbers have the same problem. I don't know. But well, you know, I, Jimmer, the more you get paid, the less you do. That's true. Anyway, that's, that's a nice true. little sidelight. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's play this track, man. Get your guitar tuned up. We're going to hear this track. Again, this is Empty. Jimber Podraski is my guest here on Independence Day. Brand new record, which I love. The would-be plans is what it's called. So glad that you're back. You're away. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I knew of the rave-ups. But, you know, I can't. Everyone I, knew, I knew of, of the them, but I didn't know them that terribly yeah. well. So, I mean, I, I, li- I like that you're back because if you keep making records like this, you should stay back, man. Well, that's a nice thing to say. So, Thanks. play this track, man. What's this? This is uh, Empty, Jim Padrone. This is Empty. All right. The acoustic version of Empty. All right. Love it, man. I feel as empty as a gun. After the shooting spree is done And when the blue-black night is gone I feel as empty as the dawn And I know I just couldn't be wrong And I know I just couldn't be bad My country when it's right or wrong My lover drunk or sober My brother when he's good or bad This conversation's over And I know I just couldn't be wrong And I know I just couldn't be bad So come on, come on and walk with me We don't feel as fool as we ought to be Love can be quick and so it goes Blood may be thick but water flows Well, faith is hard to come by now Like winning the lottery And I've had as much of God As I think that he has had of me When I know I just couldn't be wrong And I know I just couldn't be bad So come on, come on and walk with me We don't feel as fool as we ought to be Love can be quick and so it goes Blood may be thick but water flows
I feel as empty as a gun After the shooting spree is done And when the bottles bought are gone I feel as empty as the dawn I feel as empty as the dawn His name is Jimmer Podraski. My name is Joe Armstrong. I produce this show every week called Independence Day. I bring you artists from around Los Angeles and around the world. You can learn about the show at indepday.com. That's I-N-D-E-P-D-A-Y.com. Follow us on Twitter at indepday. Also, facebook.com slash indepday. And I feel like this laundry list of stuff I say every single week, but please. You got to do it. Follow us. Like us. Pay attention, man. We're really working hard it's to like build. It's like the anchor man at the end of the 5 o'clock news. He has to say Indeed. the same thing every time. Indeed, man. I'm, I'm, I'm working very, very hard to build something with this show, and we would love your support. So follow us. I have yet to make a penny at this show. So keep, keep, uh, keep out there. Keep listening, everybody. It's a labor of love. It is a labor of love. And Jimmer, your music, also a labor of love. So happy to have you. Great track from the record, from the new record. Uh, and you were talking before how you had maybe a couple hundred songs. Tell me a little bit about going into making this record, The Would-Be Plans, that's just kind of now soft showing up in the mm-hmm. world. Yes. A very gentle birthing process. Uh, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm imagining for this metaphor... Long like, labor. You know the... Uh, the, I don't know what they call the underwater birth when the baby is born and like it's still the warm water right. and it's not this big shock. Like I think that's how your album is being born. I'll, I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> and it's good though. It's less shock to the system. Yeah. So you start to, to, before you culled them down to the 10 tracks on the record, which is you said 10, right? That's what we've yeah. decided. Yeah, 10. Um, you started, you played. We only had money enough for 10. <laughs> There's a moment, you had, but you had more than enough time to play a lot of songs for your well, producer. Well, that was just Mitch, Mitch and, and me. Well, that's what I mean, though. Yeah. Like, you know, that's the thing. That's a, a unique thing is that almost every band does that. Like, they, they've got their group of songs. Right. They either demo them or they just play them for the producer, and then you kind of start whittling through them. What's going to, you know, where, what are we going to move forward with? You know, like, uh, sometimes I'll start with a record with about 20 tracks. And then we usually wind up recording maybe 15 or, 15 or 18 of those and actually right. get recorded. But then, for whatever reason, the song doesn't fit or we didn't get the performance we wanted right. or something doesn't go right, then you call it down from there. Right. And then even sometimes you go as far as mastering, which is like the last step, and you master maybe 16, but then you wind up with 13 right. because they just don't fit in the sequence right. for it. It's like this calling process. So tell right. me... Uh, you know, with all these songs, what is your, what's your process like? Because if you were writing for 23 years, were all these songs like finished? Verse, choruses, bridges, like fully completed songs? Mm-hmm. What, what Mitch brought to the table uh, was just a different perspective. He didn't change the words. He didn't change the chords. He didn't change... What he did was sometimes change the tempo or the groove okay. a bit. Um, minor, very, very minor changes in arrangements. Um, and he's he's good at that. He's good at knowing. Let's just get to the meat of things. You know, there are. I don't think any lead guitar moments on this record. Mitch understood this this is about songs. It's not about a band. Um, I know when I wrote for the Rave Ups, I wrote all those songs in the Rave Ups. The Rave Ups had, at the time, a gunslinger guitar player. 
a guy who you wanted to just shred. I call him a ringer. Right. Like most bands have a ringer. And therefore, I wrote with that in mind. I always wrote with, okay, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. Okay, this will be an instrumental thing after the second chorus. Go, Terry. So I, I wrote with that in mind. With this, even though Brian is an extraordinary player, and could, Brian Whelan. Brian Whelan. He could have taken over the record in the sense of every song, had he been given a lead solo thing, he probably would have. But it wasn't about that. It was about how do we make these songs as simple and as great sounding as we can. And it's not about a band. It's not about, you know, the Rave Ups was a band. This is an this is a, a song thing, and Mitch is a smart enough guy to realize there was no need for the superfluous. Yeah. Hey, solo. Yeah. Um, and I was struck by when I first sat down and listened to the record from beginning to end when it was finally mixed, that it dawned on me, wow, this isn't like those rave ups records. That there yeah. isn't that. Okay, here's the lead guitar, and not to say one is better than the other it was just different and the focus on this was all about the songs not about the band and i think it works that way yeah yeah tell me this though like with all these songs like you were you were writing for years and years and years did, did you did you know in the back of your mind that maybe someday you would do something with them or are you the kind of person who would continue to write even if there would be no outlet because that's what you do well i did I mean, you know, for 23 years I wrote, but that, you know, I, I had, I was busy raising a son and, uh, I didn't know whether or not I was ever going to make music again in that I would release a, a record. And honestly, I held in the back of my head, this notion that the rave ups would make another record. Again. Okay. That. I certainly had more than enough material for them to come in and be the rave-ups, and you know we would change things up in order to allow Terry, the guitar player, to do his thing, and they just weren't interested. They just... Where do they all live? Here. They're all LA. here. Yeah. Okay. Because you guys were back and forth. You were originally from Pittsburgh. Right. But then the band... There was, was a Pittsburgh of, version of the rave-ups. Yeah. But then the band kind of was like back and forth a little bit at one point in the early days. But you've been out here a very, a very out, good long I, time. I've been out here for 32 years. You're a naturalized Californian Yeah, I, I've, I've, I've been in California longer than I was in Pittsburgh. Yeah. So you're just writing away with mm-hmm. all these songs, you know, maybe with the idea that the rave-ups were going to do another record. That's, in the back of my mind... That's what I had hoped for, that one day, after hearing for so many years, whatever happened to you guys, are you going to make another record someday? And I really thought we would. Um, And I lobbied for it with them, because I'm still close with them. Um, And I see them occasionally. And I I didn't want to just get together once or twice a year to do some live show and here we were playing those songs from 25 or 30 years ago. I was a songwriter. I right. had other songs. You song- needed an outlet for I this needed stuff. an outlet. And um, the woman who introduced me to Mitch was a dear friend of mine, longtime friend, Allison Freebaron Smith. And she was the one who actually said to me, you got to forget about the rave ups. 
it's not going to happen. They don't want to make music, so don't hang on to it. And I think you ought to meet my friend Mitch because he is a great musician and he's a great producer and he would be perfect for you. Unbeknownst to me, she was sort of telling Mitch the same thing. You right. got to meet my friend Jimmer. You got to produce his record. And it took a couple of years yeah. until we finally did meet. And one night we did meet and we actually sat down in a living room, not unlike this, and we played together. And both of us knew, yeah. We didn't know who else was going to be playing, but we knew the two of us would do it. And that's when I finally let go of the rave-ups and said, yeah, I guess I'll do this. This is what I'll do. Knowing when to let go of something is a hard lesson to learn. Because if you come, you know, maybe it's a Midwestern thing. If you're lucky enough to have people like Mitch, Brian Whelan... Ted Russell Camp around you, Rami, Marty Rifkin. It's best to just let them do their thing because yeah. they're so damn good at it. Yeah. I'm not going to tell Mitch how to play drums, you know, any more than he would tell me how to write a line. So I it, it was great to to hand the the steering wheel over to yeah. Mitch. You drive the bus. Go for it. Yeah, it's a. It, sometimes it can be a big relief, a big, it was, big weight it was off a your huge shoulders, relief. having someone else drive I for was a while. Making those, you know, the rave ups only made four records, but I was anxiety ridden throughout all of them because I, you know, I had my nose in everything. I had to be there. Everything, every time somebody recorded even a bit part, I had to be there when it was mixed, when it was mastered. This was a completely different thing. I wasn't there. It, th- this was mixed in Nashville by David Leonard. Neither Mitch nor I w- was there because we knew David Leonard is a pro. I trust him. So there was an awful lot of, look, these guys have already proven that you should trust them. Yeah. Let it go. Let it go. Let them do what, the, you know. At first, you know, when you're a, a bit of a control freak, you you know, like, what do you mean I won't be there? You know, that kind of, yeah. They'll do something I don't like. And it was like, no, they'll do something that is going to be great, and you have to give them the space to do that. Learning to let go in, in, in the big sense, like in the life sense, is a very, very important it's thing difficult. to learn. And I, I, like maybe, again, maybe it's a, just a Midwestern thing. Like you invest in things and you, when you invested in something, you want to, you know, you're willing to take hits for it. Right. And you're willing to like take on extra responsibility and you're willing to like, the, the, it's for better or for worse. Right. You know, you would use whatever metaphor you want. Right. Um, but there comes a point where you know when you're you've got your hands in all these pies and you're trying to control every aspect of it right. that you're not winning no you figure out that you're actually kind of losing by doing no that. you're 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 uh you're at odds with yourself at that point yeah you're not you're not helping i had a girl break up with me at one point um just one just one <laughs> just one now, one of one of the <laughs> dozens right. uh, who broke up with me at one point, and all the breakup the breakup took place in Los Angeles. Uh, I didn't let go. I you know right away. I, I I get to the mountains when I want to decompress from from the world. Like I go up to Yosemite National Park or out to Joshua right. Tree, up to Big Sur or whatever. That's how I that's how I deal with things. So right away, like as soon as it happened, 
like within a few days, like, you know, I'm, I'm going up to Yosemite. I got a couple can, I got a campsite right. and just took off for a few right. days. Couldn't go for long, but it was enough. Right. And I did a big epic hike way off into the back country. And it was there that I let go. It wasn't here. Right. It wasn't there. And once that weight had been lifted, then I was free to move forward. Right. But until that point, you know, so, you know, it can, can apply it to music, apply it to relationships, apply it to whatever you're going to do. People we've known, animals we've lost, mm-hmm. you know, you have that letting go skill is something that we're constantly learning. And the results exactly. from you, for you seem to be really, really great. So I'm glad. Oh, it was the best Jimmer, thing. I'm so happy you learned to let go, man. I, it was the like be- a therapist It was right the now. best thing I could possibly do to, uh, you know, uh, to get out of the way. Getting out of, Get out of the, your own way. Getting out of my own way was a great thing because life, no matter whether it's music or it's just everyday life, there, there, you have to live it amongst everyone else, and you have to yeah. have to understand that you know you're part of a much bigger whole. You're not, you're not the king of the world, and you're not, and you don't have the answers to everything. And you know maybe. You learn that as you get older, after getting you know your butt kicked and you know heartbreak and all that stuff. If you're smart, you learn from it. If you're not, you just make those same mistakes over and over again. Yeah. And I didn't want to do that. I you know I'm I am really beholden to Mitch for driving the bus. Yeah. Because he did a remarkable job, and he also exposed me to some really wonderful people who I now consider friends. I love Brian. Brian not only is a hell of a musician, he's a great kid. I mean, Good he's human a being. yeah, he's a really same thing with Ted. They're, you know, they're just I would hang out with them even if I wasn't playing music with them. You and know if I mean? they weren't on the road with Dwight Yoakam all the time. <laughs> well. <laughs> Damn you, <laughs> My guest tonight in Independence Day, Jimmer Podraski. One time, uh, would you call yourself the leader of the Rave Ups? Yes. Is that, is that an appropriate I, title? I, 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 they, call, they call me the founder leader. The founder Front leader man. of the band, the Rave Ups, way back from the 80s, had some success. Took a two-plus decade break from the music industry. Didn't stop writing songs, but stopped the nonsense that was the music business. I had another job to do, though. Yeah, there's other things. We, we, you know, we are multifaceted human beings. There are other things that call us to do. Uh, but he's got a brand new record out produced by Mitch Marine of Dwight's band called The Would-Be Plans. Uh, not unlike some of the rave-up stuff, but boy, the heavy hitters playing on this record, and it sounds fantastic. But I think you said you had some new songs as well that you had well, done. Well, I always do. So uh, I always I, do. So know, I, one of the 10,000 that you write per week. <laughs> so what uh, you've got your guitar, like we said before. How about another tune, man? Uh, this is a song uh, called Shoot the Moon. It has to. It's uh, specifically about my son's mom, uh, who was uh, the subject of probably the most famous... If the Rave Ups had a famous song... It was a song called Positively Lost Me that was in the Pretty in Pink film. Um, John was, Hughes film. Yeah, it was also probably a, the, our big college radio hit. But it's that song was about my son's mom at the time, uh, my son who hadn't been born yet. And she happened to be born with a, an 11th toe. So she, on one of her feet, she had an extra toe, which was removed when she was an infant, but I always 
was freaked out by that. And in the song Positively Lost Me, there's a line that, and she counts romances on 11 toes. So this is sort of a follow-up to that. And long after we broke up and long after we went our separate ways, and it's called Shoot the Moon. All right, Jimmer Podraski on Independence Day, brand new tune. It was a life time ago Give or take a year or so I was leaning against myself When I met a girl with eleven toes That's right, yeah She had eleven toes Well, we fell in love like trucks colliding Pretty noisy, pretty hard It was just like us to find some kind of trouble in our own backyard That's right, yeah Big trouble And even then I said You can't own a thought You can't touch a mood You can't raise a roof You can't come too soon You can't kiss a song You can't fuck the moon And I can't pull the loving out of you. Pretty soon we were mom and dad Things went good and things went bad it was tomato, tomato to me Everything gets blurry eventually That's right, yeah Getting blurry and even then I said You can't own a thought You can't touch a mood You can't raise a roof You can't come too soon You can't kiss a song You can't fuck the moon And I can't pull the loving out of you And oh, I thought that might see in time Oh, come ringing back to me Ring it! It was a life time ago Give or take a year or so I was leaning against myself When I met a girl with eleven toes That's right, yeah She had eleven toes And even then I said You can't hold a 
can't touch a mood You can't raise the roof You can't come too soon You can't kiss a song You can't shoot the moon And I can't pull the loving out of you All right, man. Nice acoustic music. One of these <laughs> songs that you seem to kind of tumble out of you. What's your weekly... Uh, do you tend to like... Are you always working on a song? Like, no. Is there always one in the back of your head? Or no, they, I, or they tend to just I kind of through, tumble you out. You know, I, I think I would be uh, a uh, considered a manic, depressive writer. I go through phases where I write an awful lot. And then I could go for many, many months without ever writing a thing. Yeah. And some songs write themselves. Yeah, definitely. And some songs, you know, hey, I've been playing that riff now for about two years. Yeah. When am I going to do something with it? And you just keep doing So some of them are labor intensive, and some of them seem to just write themselves. I and, think of uh, them as children, in a way. Right. Because every song has what it wants to be, right. and every child is going to be what it's right. going to be. And right. your job as the writer or parent is to guide it into the world you know, and, and help I, it be what it's going to be. And I don't think any parent would say, oh, well, I love this child more because it was an easy delivery. Yeah. No. You know, you love your kids <laughs> all the same. Some, yeah. some are tougher, Some, but... That's just the way it is. Songs the same way. And, Some songs and, are a gift. They just drop into your lap, top to bottom, right. complete. And you and and that rarely happens. It's that rare. rare. That rarely happens. When it happens, you should just count your blessings yeah. and move on. Yeah. But uh, you know, for the most part, it it usually is like, oh my god, I've been sitting around my living room for the last three months playing this same damn guitar lick. Oh, now I've figured a second part out to it after yeah. months and months of just playing that lick. Sometimes it's just a line. Sometimes it's just, hey man, I'm going to write a song and this is the first line. I've already written the first line. I'm, I'm not even sure where the song is going, but this is the first line. I don't have any music. I don't have anything, but this is where it begins. So it's always a little different. Sometimes it begins with the music. Sometimes it begins with the words. Yeah. And you just follow your heart. Yeah, everybody's got their own process. They do. As, as far as the way they go. That's why I have, I have a difficult time writing with anyone. You know, I, I, the, the process is so personal to me that it's, it, I, I can't imagine having writing partners. Because I don't, I mean, unless... It was an extraordinary situation. I don't. I don't know if it it works. You know. Yeah, you never know. You never know. You never know if they pair you up with uh, was it Diane Warren, the one who <laughs> writes all those songs that Aerosmith winds up doing. Man, I would be fine to write with Diane Warren if Aerosmith's going to do my song. I, yeah, but I, you know, lyrically, I couldn't take it. Yeah, I couldn't take it. Interesting. That's what would kill me because it all seems so lame. Yeah, <laughs> you know, mus musically, that's the definitive mus answer, man. Musically, it might be quite great. You know, I mean, uh, melodically and whatever, but lyrically, I don't, I couldn't vomit out those words. Interesting, just would kill me. 
Yeah. I'm talking with Jimmer Podraski. He was the one-time leader of the band, The Rave Ups. I guess you're still technically the leader. If you ever do anything again, you're the guy. But he's oh, gonna, The Rave Ups still play around. Yeah, he'll play from time mm-hmm. to time. But there's he's got a brand new record called The Would-Be Plans available on his website, which is jimmermusic.com, also facebook.com slash jimmer.podraski. And he's not on the Twitter, so don't try to find him on the Twitter. No. People have tweeted about you, though, when I was looking around. Really? So you're there. You well, just don't have a presence I, I, there. I, I, I've had many people say, oh, you have to do that. You know, oh, you know, that 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 is just normal in the music world now. You have to be on Twitter. And I, I'm just getting used to Facebook and stuff like that. And I, I'm not a real computer savvy guy. I I don't own an iPad or an MP3 player. I still listen. If I can't hear it on my CD player in my car or on my little, you know, boom box in my house then i don't listen to it yeah so you know there's a certain amount of uh like you brought some vinyl and thank you that was really really kind of you like i love listening to vinyl it's, it's an archaic format that makes you listen yes because it's more labor intensive it's not like well, there there it's not just it's not just the audio of it it is the experience, experience. of M- mitch will be the first one to say even though there are 10 songs on this CD, he had the wild idea that he wanted an A side and a B side. And we actually, we actually very briefly wrestled with the idea of putting two discs on the thing, but it, that was just not cost effective. And yeah. Eventually, that was a stupid idea. But the thought of, I want these first five songs to end right here yeah. and now this is the beginning of side b and it too will have a beginning and an end yeah. and i loved that I, I that's where i come from you you had to stand up go to the turntable and turn the damn thing over and put the needle down and then walk back to wherever you were you know situated listening to it and it was an experience it was not I got my little earbuds in and I have 10,000 songs on shuffle in my iPod or iPad or whatever. And it's not the same thing. It's too disposable to me. You really have to, in the old days to buy a record, you had to ride your bike to the, the tower or the national record mart or whatever it was in Chicago. And you only had so much money in your pocket and you looked at everything and then you chose and you you got home and you opened it up and it was it was a real experience you had to commit to it nowadays if you're standing in line at Ralph's and you hear something that you like and you can download it in 10 seconds i don't think it has the same power anymore granted it's the same music but you know you, you have to you have to work a, you have to Put a little effort into this thing. Yeah. It's not asking a lot of people. The best things are worth working for. Exactly. You know, I've told my son that a million times growing up. You know, yeah. does if he it, listen? It, yes, he does. He does. You know, but he's 25 now and he didn't listen for a long time. But yeah. he knows now, whether it's with girlfriends or with jobs or whatever, if if it comes easy, it might not really be worth all yeah. that much. There comes a time in, in, in every human being's development, hopefully most people go through this, where you actually physically remove your head from your anus. <laughs> 
And then all of a sudden, right. all these colors wow. show up. Look at all these people and all this stuff. And right. you know, it's. Uh, I mean, I'm well, glad to hear that he's uh, he's emerged. What's the uh, what's the old Mark Twain thing? When I when I was four, 14, I thought my father was an idiot. When I was twenty one, I was amazed at how much he had learned. Yeah, indeed, you Mark know. Twain, one of our uh, greatest writers, yes. if not the greatest writer. Uh, tell me this. I got one more set of questions, and I want you to play one more tune, if that's all right. Um, you've been through some kind of hard times yeah. in the past, yeah. you know, since we last heard from you musically. Um, I, I was one of millions of Americans who, during the Great Recession, was a victim of downsizing. And I, I had an unusual job in that I was a, a script reader for the venerable William Morris agency. Ironically, William Morris used to be <laughs> the Rave Ups agency, uh, booking agency. And that's how I ended up getting the job. I turned to the one guy I knew, and he said, you were an English major in college. And I said, yeah. And he goes, you, have you ever read movie scripts? I said, no. And he said, do you think you could do it? And I said, how hard could it be? And I got the job, and I spent... 11, 12 years, though, I read 10,000 or more scripts in the time that I was there. They got taken over, believe it or not, by a smaller agency, Endeavor. Endeavor came in and took over William Morris. William Morris had been around for 111 years. Oh, my. Endeavor had been around for maybe 10. I didn't quite understand how was that possible how could you allow this company this historic talent agency to be taken over by again chicago guy it was ari emmanuel and uh he was the guy and anyone who had anything to do with william morris was gone including you S including me and I also was dealing with uh, a, a family problem in that my son had become a heroin addict, and uh, and it was a really really bad time. Uh, lies and stealing and as it often violence. time happens when you get involved. Yeah, with and a drug you know, like and uh, my heart broke because I just thought, how how is this possible that this young smart kid could get involved in this stuff. And I'm so proud of him because he's been clean now for three years. But I, I was taken aback by the Philip Seymour Hoffman thing because yeah. I realized how brave Chance is because... Chance he, is your son. He is going to have to stay vigilant forever. Yeah. It's not like, hey, man, it's been three years. Uh, you know, uh, everything's cool. Here's a guy who had had enormous success, 23 years clean, suddenly he something triggers him, he goes back, and now he's dead. Yeah. And that really put and it... And dead is dead. And dead is dead. That's exactly. it. And so I know what Chance is doing is a heroic thing because very few people get over this. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I know he's going to have to remain vigilant forever. And that's a tough thing to do. You know, especially with a drug like heroin, you know, it's one thing to go, hey, man, I haven't had a drink in 20 years. And, it, and I'm thinking, well, you're probably out of the woods then. But 
with some drugs, especially with heroin, you, you know, the, 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 I don't know what the word is, the... Uh, Recidivism rate yes, or the relapse is, rate? is extraordinary. It's yeah. extraordinary. Very few people get out a lot. You don't hear a lot of people who are like, oh, yeah, I was at a party. I shot a little heroin. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, it's Monday, I'm back at work. Everything's <laughs> right. cool. Right. You know, it's it's not that kind of drug. It's no, the kind of drug. No. Cocaine is somewhat like that, yes. too, as I understand it. Yeah. It's the kind of drug that not it's just, a serious, not just serious takes over your drug. life. It kind of becomes your it life. It becomes your life. You know, you can talk to guys like Steve Earle. You can talk to guys. There's so many people out there. Who, what's what's the line from Lou Reed? It's my life and it's my wife. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, I'm glad that he's doing well, man. Yeah. I mean, it's for your own sake, for his sake, for everybody's sake. No, I mean, he's, don't do he, drugs, kids. He's really turned it around, and yet I know that it's never going to be completely safe because anything can happen you know and because you're dealing with drugs that are deadly um anything that triggers you going back to that puts you at a risk of dying and you know the philip seymour hoffman is a classic case of god you'd think after 23 years he probably had it together what could have triggered him especially in that in the 23 years since he stopped he's had a one pretty wonderful life he's yeah. famous he's well off he's successful at the respected. thing that he loves extremely well respected what could have done it and you know i i still don't know but i know that anything can trigger an addict and when you're dealing with drugs like heroin yeah it's a dangerous thing yeah and, but in your and case you're never you're never safe yeah, never save. I'm, well, again, we're very happy he's doing well. Yeah. Uh, you know, but in your case, you know, so you, you lost your gig. You're kind of scrapping around. I mean, there's all these like romantic stories about Jewel living in her van and all. No, this, there's nothing. Romantic there was one about point it. where you didn't have a place to live. No. And there's nothing romantic about. You know, I look. I, I, I've been kind of a poor musician most of my life, so I guess the struggling artist thing was nothing new to me. But I didn't have a son. So the dynamic of, you know what, I don't really care what the universe is doing to me. I care what it's doing to my son. And it's heartbreaking. You know, as much as you want to protect your child, you, you know that sometimes you can't. And I'm, you know, I, I, I want to think that I'm in control. And it was a, you know, a real wake-up call to realize that I'm not in control and that I'm not able to protect my son from everything. It's just not possible. And to admit that was a difficult thing because it meant failure. Yeah. And nobody wants to admit defeat. And in Chance's case, the only way to save him was to, to part ways with him, to get him out of Los Angeles, to turn to his mom and to his mom's parents and say, will you take him in? He needs to get out of this city, because if he stays here, he's going to die. The geographic cure, right, is what some of the some of the right. addicts call that, because right. it's, you got to have a change of scenery, because you'll be in and, the same. And patterns. you're not around the same people. Who I mean, what's extraordinary to me is I didn't, I didn't know, but there are parts of the valley that are heroin central. You would never know it by looking at it. It looks like any other California suburb. But for some reason, Woodland Hills is, amongst teenagers and young adults, 
It's a dangerous place to Interesting. be. And I, you know, as a, as a grown man, I didn't see that. I'm kind of naive to that kind of stuff because I don't run in like heroin circles or cocaine circles. So like, well, you I, know, I know it's there. Well, the, you know, the, the terrible thing is, is that I think a lot of these kids stole Oxycontin and prescription drugs from their parents or older brothers and sisters. And those are expensive. Right. Street heroin is cheaper than Oxycontin. So when you're used to getting that high and you still want it, but you don't have the money or the prescription to buy Oxycontin, you turn to street heroin because it's cheaper. So okay. suddenly all these kids who They're were- Probably easier to, to get too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a scary thing to me because I can't think of a drug that is more dangerous than heroin. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me this. I mean, I want to have one last question, and I would like you to play another tune. Do you think, because, you know, so many people suffer so much for their art, do you think that suffering is essential for art to be good or to be valid? Or do you think, like the example I'm thinking of is a guy named Jason Isbell. He was in Drive By mm -hmm. Truckers. He released an album last year. Got sober, got happy, got, uh, got Steve married. Steve Earle's another one. Steve Earle, you know, they, they, they got sober, they got happy. And usually with a lot of people, when that happens, their music's, they get happy and they get clean and their music's not great. But then well, sometimes, it's like the old story of, you know, you know, Clapton was better when he was a junkie. Yeah, or we romanticize that idea. Well, we romanticize it and we forget about the human element. Okay, so you like, you like the heroine, Eric Clapton, but he's alive. So think about it from his perspective. Maybe it doesn't move you the way that period when he was addicted moves you. But you're being selfish. You're being really selfish in that this guy struggled to overcome this thing. He's still alive. You have no right to judge. And I, I don't know if it's, you know, it's almost like, do you have to be black to get the blues? No. Do you have to be a white guy to understand country music? No. Are there stereotypes that, you know, get pushed and, and there's a part of it that is truthful? Yes. But I don't think that, I don't think suffering, believe me, if suffering led to great art, then we'd all be great artists, but we're not. You know what I mean? Every, every, everyone, everyone suffers, suffers to a everyone certain extent. Everyone suffers to a certain extent. And, you know, the, the art, the artist who suffers might have a better bent on interpreting that suffering and turning into something positive than others. But I don't know. Yeah. I just, I just know. I don't think it's a, I don't think anything is a given in the arts. There are no rules to them. There are no ways to follow it so that you can too, you can be successful. Like, you know, it's not like being a lawyer. If you the want Jason to be... Isbell thing, I know he had the brother thing with the cancer or whatever, and does he have to suffer? Does he have to do this in order to create? I don't think so. I, you know, I mean, granted, some guys and some women are able to take extraordinary pain and turn it into something that is just beautiful. Um, but like I said, if it was a necessity then, you know, we wouldn't have a lot of really great art that was yeah. just fun. Well, think of it this way, too. Like, there's suffering, and then there's suffering. Mm -hmm. If suffering were essential for art, think of the art we'd be getting out of Syria. 
or right. the Chad exactly. or Central Africa exactly. or places where people are suffering on a grand scale. Right. And art, I'm sure, exists to some ex- sure. extent. It's a part of the human condition. You sure. can't get away from it. But if that were really the case, the people who are really suffering, because even in my lowest times, I've never experienced anything like what's going on in those types of places no. around the world. No, I mean, and uh, you know, I, I've been through the ringer in the last few years, and I still put it in perspective. It is nothing compared to what a lot of people have gone through. So, um, there's always somebody worse off than you. <laughs> and I hate to say it like this, but thank God for that. Man. Well, you know, I, mean, I hate to you know, be the guy in the bottom. Right. You know, or the girl on the bottom. Right. Anyway, man, so I hated to get all heavy about that, but like one more tune here. Is this going to be a new song? Is this going to be this, something this else? This is a fairly this? new song, and it is about... I rarely write songs based on something that isn't directly in my personal life, but I read this news story about this woman in Ohio, 90-some years old, who... The bank was taking her home away from her, and she attempted to commit suicide by shooting herself in the chest with a shotgun. She survived. My Lord. Um, but the, the story was just so heartbreaking. Like, wow, are we really at this point in our lives that a bank would foreclose on a woman who has lived in this home for 60-some years, has nowhere else to go. Her, She's a widow, and she's scared. And th- and you're going to do this to her? And, and that at this point in her life, I can't even imagine physically how a little old woman could get a shotgun and, you know, so... And she also had a name that was... Lyrical. A, a lyrical name, Addie Polk. And I sat down and I wrote this. All right. Speaking of hard times. Okay, so once again, Jimmer Podraski on Independence Day. All right. The Ballad of Addie Polk. Addie Polk. Couldn't pay the mortgage and the bills They built up just like so much dust Upon the knickknacks and the prescription pills On the lucky horseshoes stained with rust Everybody said how couldn't this ever be Daddy gathered flowers in the yard We all wonder what the politicians mean His daddy placed the shotgun to a heart All lonesome me Lights burning bright How lonely we are It's as easy as what's wrong and what is right
had a poke, couldn't figure out when things went wrong. Her husband always paid the bills. She sat and stared at walls after not very long. The mailman's footsteps gave her chills. And we all wonder what the politicians mean. Zaddy gathered flowers in the yard. And everybody said, how couldn't this ever be? Zaddy placed the shotgun to her heart. Lights burning bright How lonely we are It's as easy as what's wrong and what is right All lonesome me Lights burning bright easy as what's wrong and what is right it's as easy as what's wrong and what is right jimmer padraski with a very touching song a more or less at least adapted from a true story yes and i love it when things like that are gleaned from true stories there's yeah. like that poster john lennon like all those songs from sergeant pepper came from that one poster <laughs> you seen like the benefit the benefit it. of mr kite and all that. those you find inspiration everywhere you go, man. You just got to look. You, it, it, that is so true. You could be on the bus and you overhear a conversation and just a line jumps out at you and suddenly it has nothing to do with that conversation, but it has something to do with, you know, something yeah. else. Yeah, you just, just go from there and build yeah. a beautiful story on it right. or a scary story or a happy story or any kind of story you right. want. It's a tabula rasa, man. Right. So, uh, Jimmer, I can't thank you enough, man, for coming on the show, for sharing your music, uh, sharing the new record, bringing me vinyl. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. <laughs> and bringing me so many great stories. You well, know, good. I'm glad. I love these conversations, and I love hearing what everybody's experience is all about. So, well, thanks for having me. Uh, my pleasure. You can learn about Jimmer Podraski at jimmermusic.com, facebook.com slash jimmer.podraski, and don't bother looking for him on Twitter because he's not there. As always, you can learn about <laughs> Independence Day at indepthday.com. Follow us on Twitter at indepthday <laughs> and facebook.com slash indepthday. So thanks to Jimmer Podraski, also to the Independence Day staff, Valentino Rivera, Dale Tanksley, Wayne Topinski, and Sally Shackleton. Independence Day's theme music was composed by Great Lakes Myth Society. For Independence Day, as always, I am Joe Armstrong. Please be good to one another. <laughs>